Hey, well, I'm going to dive right in because the time is short. Uh, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And I just want to open really quick by mentioning that it is truly an honor for me to get to do this. I uh, am amazed at the opportunities the Lord has given me. It's all by His grace. And it's my joy to come and share with you from, from His Word. And so my, my prayer for you is that you would be edified and blessed and built up and encouraged by God and His Word. Amen? Amen. All right. I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to start and read the odd verses, and then I'm going to have you guys read the even verses. So here we go. Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. For we, there we go. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we be sanctified by it. May we store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And may we not ever wander from your commandments. Lord, my prayer today is that you would show us Christ, that you would stir up our affections for him. And I ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. So before we continue on in the text and learn about where we're going, I want to remind you briefly of where we've been. So back in chapters 1 and 2, Paul called the believers to unity. He said in chapter 2, 1 through 4, that all believers, those who share encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Holy Spirit, all of us, we are to be found in full accord and of one mind. We are called to unity. Our unity with one another is rooted in humility as exemplified by Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember in Philippians chapter 2, Paul so eloquently states that we are to have this mind among ourselves that, was, that is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The one who is at the highest position in all of the cosmos condescended to the lowest place, and he became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Christ perfectly exemplified for us a heart of humility. And so when Paul calls us to unity, he's telling us to be rooted Sorry, when Paul calls us to unity, he is telling us to be rooted in humility as exemplified by Christ. Now, last week, Pastor Steve excellently expounded this doctrine of unity, and today we're going to continue in the same vein. We're going to continue building on that framework that was laid. So today, Paul is going to warn the church against those who would put confidence in the flesh and not confidence in the grace of God. If Christ's bride, if the church is to remain joyful, unified, and effective for ministry, she must humbly rest in the work of God and not her own merit. We must be humble and pursue unity. In verse 1, what does Paul say? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
Now, Philippians is one of the most joyful books in Scripture. The word rejoice or joy turns up about 16 times, maybe more, in this book, where Paul is saying, rejoice, rejoice. And as we've covered previously, uh, he's in prison. He's telling his listeners to rejoice even in the hardest of circumstances. Now, I wanted to survey this a little bit. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? God himself, as well as the gifts that God gives in and through his people, are the source of our gladness and our joy. Now look at how Paul views this. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul rejoices in the proclamation of Christ. He says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And he carries over into verse 19, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul rejoices in deliverance. And notice, it's not necessarily a deliverance from prison. That may be the case. But he says that I would not be put to shame. That is God delivering me. He rejoices in God's deliverance. Even if he were to die, God has still delivered him. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul rejoices in the church's humble unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. And so lesson number one for us is this. Paul rejoiced in the unity of the church, and we ought to as well. We ought to seek unity with one another and let it be a source and a cause of joy in our life. Later in chapter four, he's going to say, rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice Paul is not only recommending joy in this letter, he's commanding it. We are called to take joy in God and in his people, the work that God is doing in this world. He says then, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul is going to reiterate to the Philippians something he's previously iterated to them, whether it was orally or by another letter that we don't have, but he's been in some kind of communication with them. And he's saying this, rejoice in the Lord, And now I'm going to address some issues, and I want you to have joy in the midst of them. What I'm about to say is no cause for your joy to be broken. This is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. You need to know this. He says this in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, who are these guys? Who are these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh? Who are we talking about? Scholars will suggest two camps of people. Either they are unconverted Jews, still operating under the Mosaic Code uh, as if it has not been fulfilled by Christ. And the other camp is more likely that it's Judaizers. These are people who proclaimed to be Christians, but they insisted that Christians are still bound by the Levitical ceremonial law. For example, things like circumcision. And Paul develops this more in Galatians, if you want to go read that on your own time. In either case, whether it's unconverted Jews or Judaizers, the point is that these individuals are not from God. Paul uses irony to drive his point forward about these guys. He says, those who are supposed to be pure are dogs. Now think of this. These Judaizers, these are people who are claiming that we need to remain in some way, shape, or form under the unfulfilled Mosaic Old Covenant. And so in so doing, they're insisting that that is the way to be pure before God. So here's the irony. I don't want you to miss this. Those who are supposed to be pure are actually dogs, according to Paul. Dogs were considered unclean by first century Jews. 
Those who claim righteousness by the law, what does Paul call them? Evildoers. They are claiming that the law is their righteousness and that those who would submit to Christ must perfectly obey his law for righteousness. And Paul says they're evildoers. And then he says that they are mutilators of the flesh. So here's, here's what Paul's getting at. Those who require circumcision as a symbol for purification by the cutting off of the flesh actually mutilate the flesh. That which they are seeking to do as an, an act of obedience for purity is really an act of disobedience, mutilating the flesh and neglecting what Christ has done. Paul says this then in verse 3. He continues on. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. So check out what Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9 says. We'll put that up here. He says this, Paul, same author. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then one more quotation to bring this full circle. Romans 9, 6, the second half of it says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So simply put, just being in Abraham's bloodline, just being an Israelite, does not make us right before God. And mere external conformity to God's law does not make us right before God. Again, to use the example of circumcision. Merely being circumcised does not make you right before God. That's not what makes you right before Christ's throne. And even in the Old Testament, circumcision itself was always about the inward reality. It was an external sacrament, if you will, that was supposed to point to the inward reality that the the flesh has been cut off and that God has saved us, reconciled us, purified us, even at the cost of blood. Paul is saying it is not the physical descent from Abraham or mere adherence to the Levitical code that grants us salvation. So what is it that grants us salvation? Faith. Faith alone. The true Israel, the true circumcision, the true offspring of Abraham are those who, to quote Paul here in this text, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let's maybe spell that out a little bit more. Confidence in the flesh. Well, in English, at least, it comes from the Latin term confide. So when we talk about confidence, we're using basically with faith. That's what we're saying, with faith. When you have confidence in something, you are exercising faith in that thing. And so the question is this, what is your faith in? Do you have confidence in the flesh? Is your faith, your trust, your belief, your rest in your own merit, in your own works of righteousness before God? Do you have faith in yourself? I think all of us would say, heck no, amen, of course I don't. But we all are often so tempted to think that we can just be right before God on our own instead of resting in what? By faith in the grace of God through Christ Jesus. No mere external conformity to God's law brings salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone. All capitals, circle that, underline, alone. Grace through faith in Christ, alone. Only such faith 
can produce genuine worship, humility, and therefore unity. The true Israel glories in Christ by faith and therefore has no confidence in the flesh and all confidence in Christ. Continuing on in verse 4, Paul kind of puts on his snark hat here a little bit. I love the snarkiness of Paul. He's so eloquent and says, says things that, that oftentimes gently puts his readers to shame. Paul says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is basically saying that even one with so many accolades as himself can't be confident in the flesh, can't have confidence in the flesh. But here's the point. If salvation was by works, Paul would beat everybody out because he's got the best resume out of us all. Let's look at it. Verse 5, he says that he's circumcised on the eighth day. Well, in Genesis 17, 12, I'm just going to read the beginning of it here. Genesis 17, 12, God said to Abraham, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. All right. Well, Paul's resume is looking good. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He says that he is of the people of Israel. So we talked about physical descent. Paul was of physical descent of Abraham. And then he continues on, not just an Israelite, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was faithful to King David when Israel and Judah split. And so Paul may be even saying, I'm not just an Israelite, I'm part of a, I was part of the, I'm a descendant of the tribe that was faithful to King David, like, and of the pure bloodline. That's me. And he says, furthermore, that he's not just a Hebrew, but he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So when we have blank of blank in the scripture, the, the authors are making a point to us. So a, a common example is that Christ Jesus is the king of kings. Amen? Amen? Jesus is the king of kings. What that means is he's not just a king among the kings, but he is the king over the kings. He reigns as king of the kings. Another example would be the book Song of Songs in the Old Testament. It's not just a song. This is the song of songs. What Solomon, or whoever wrote it, most likely Solomon, not what we're talking about today, uh, what that means is that this is not just a song. This is the best song. This is beautiful. This is amazing. It's supposed to rise to the top. Paul is saying this of himself. I'm not just a Hebrew. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. You know what I'm saying? Check me out. And then he continues on. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees taught the law, studied the law, memorized the law. I mean, this guy probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He was a teacher of the law. He basically had what is a modern-day equivalent to a PhD in the law. I mean, by today's standards, probably even more than that. He was a big deal. And then he goes on to say, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Now, this is what I immediately thought of. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. Let's put that up on the screen. Uh, we often use this verse at Christmas time because it's about Christ and his incarnation. But he says this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now again, Paul would have had this memorized. He would have known this very well. And I was thinking, Paul was persecuting the church zealously. He believed that what he was doing was righteous before God. He believed that God would advance his kingdom and he probably thought of himself as a means of God's zeal to further the kingdom. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul was so zealous that he was persecuting Christians. And the irony, of course, is that he was working against the zeal 
of the Lord of hosts. But nonetheless, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he thought he was doing pretty good being an uh, enslaver and murderer of Christians for the Lord. And then he ends by saying uh, that he, as to righteousness under the law, was blameless. So Paul's external conformity to God's law was something, I mean, you could look at him and go, man, that guy is so righteous, so good. So Paul's saying, look at my resume. Now, again, of course, and I'm going to let John Michael speak on this, not me, but at the end of the day, all of our accolades, all of our accomplishments before the Lord, what are they? They're filthy rags before him. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And if we are to be a church that is unified, we must humbly rest in the work of Christ for us and not in our own flesh. Amen? So at this time, I'm going to welcome up my dear friend and brother, John Michael. It's a pleasure to do ministry with this guy. Yeah, give it up for him. Here you go. Give it up for Nate Peaster. He killed it. He killed it. It's, it's a privilege in my life to do ministry with Nate. We've been friends since we were little boys, little kids, just uh, clowning around. And now the Lord lets us work together and do the ministry together. It's such a joy. Uh, Hey, I'm just going to pick right back up where we left off and uh, read again verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in all of Paul's letters, there's like this underlying and foundational theme of unity in every single letter he wrote. Um, And... It's the same for here. Being wonderfully pastoral, Paul seems to be an expert at discovering what particular things is causing disunity in the churches uh, that he planted, and then kindly sends them a letter, uh, pointing them to Christ and giving them instruction on how to resolve the issue. And if his instructions aren't helpful um, and his warnings don't, uh, don't get them into shape, he usually will mention or end his letter with, and I'm coming to visit you soon. Um, it's kind of this subtle threat, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna come see that you have, you have uh, straightened these things out. Um, what Paul has done so far in this letter to the Philippians is establish first an expectation for unity. This uh, is summed up in chapter one, verse twenty-seven. He says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear uh, of." You that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we he, we see here first, he gives them an expectation of unity. He's like, I'm either going to come check this out or I'm going to hear about it. So stand firm, be one side by side. Then in chapter two, he reminds them of their reason for unity. Uh, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So first he gives them an expectation for unity. Then he gives them a reason for unity. Next, 
he, he'll go on in verses four and five to give what I call the ignition for unity, which is humility. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So first an expectation uh, for unity, then the reasons for unity. Then he gives them the ignition for unity. And finally, he graciously reminds them and us of our example for unity. Uh, this is exp- uh, unity expressed through humility in Christ, in whom we are saved and for whom we also aim to live in unity. Uh, listen to what he says in verses 6 and 7. Who Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so he gives them an expectation for unity, the reason for unity, the ignition for unity, and Christ, our example for unity. And in the middle of chapter 2 and moving on into chapter 3, Paul will move kind of into pointing out some issues, some key issues that will cause disunity in the churches, Um, not just for the Philippians, but maybe for us as well. These are things that we need to pay attention to. First, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, he warns them against grumbling and arguing. Um, he, this, is, this is going to divide the church, and, and um, we won't stand out amongst this twisted and broken generation among whom we are to shine as lights. An example of this from my life, I can tell this story because the person that I was grumbling and arguing with uh, is now one of my dearest friends. Um, I went on a mission trip in 2016 to Spain. And uh, there was a guy on our team who uh, we grew up together, and we were not friends in any regard. Um, if I got the chance, I probably would have uh, loved to tussle with him a little bit, pick a fight with him. Um, and he would just pick on me and pick on me and pick on me. And before I sound too innocent, I would go and run around and gossip about him and, and try to pin everyone against him. Like, look how bad he is. Like, isn't he such a jerk or whatever, right? And I, I was, he was maybe arguing or causing disunity, and I was, I was taking that fire and running it around. Well, the Lord brought unity through our wonderful pastor, uh, Jim Woolard of the time. He's our, my youth pastor growing up. And he grabbed us both by the ear, and he pulled us in a room, and he said, you're not leaving this room until you kiss and make up. Um, this is ridiculous. And he was like, you, to, to my buddy, you are uh, a bully and you're mean to JM and you, and I'm like, oh, you know, it's so terrifying. He's like, you are a gossip and you're taking that fire he starts in you and you're spreading it around and it's ruining the trip, it's ruining the team and it could make our, our ministry ineffective. And so grumbling and disputing is no joke. We can't be causing division amongst our brothers. And now that, after that day, uh, that, that guy became one of my best friends and, and we've bonded together. The second thing that Paul warns about that would cause disunity is false teaching. This is what Nate just taught us in verses, uh, or in chapter three, verse two, um, that these these Judaizers are coming and teaching false doctrine contrary to the teaching of Christ. Um, that we would be saved through our external works and an external sign, and not by the circumcision of our heart that happens through Christ uh, saving us um, and changing us. Um, and then the third one. The third one gets a little tricky and might make some of us uncomfortable. The third thing that Paul warns against is self-confidence. This is what Nate just taught on, having no confidence in the flesh. Um, Now, you might be asking, what's so bad about self-confidence? We live in a world and a culture that says, like, you do you, have a self-care day, like, all of these wonderful, like, take care of yourself, just be you, live your truth, you know, um, 
everything is righteous, right? Stand, stand up for yourself sort of mentality. But Paul, don't take it from me, take it from Paul. Paul's saying that this self-confidence, this, this uh, false confidence is a, a, is a lie. Interestingly, Paul lists accolades and achievements, accomplishments from his life that would have highly ranked him amongst the religious elite and put him in a high uh, position in society. Um, but maybe you're like me and thinking, well, yeah, even all of that stuff, forget all that stuff. In Christ, he's like the greatest follower of Christ there ever was, right? He's an apostle. He's planting these churches. He, we even know that he becomes a martyr. Like, you're Paul. Like, you got to have some credit for what you've done. Um, well, let's look at verse 7 and 8 again. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Absolute garbage. So what he brings into his faith in Christ, his religious accolades, his high status, trash. It's trash to him. It's it's of no value to him. And about the whatabouts that we talked about, his apostleship, his ministry, and his martyrdom, in verse 9, he says, and I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what Paul achieved in his Christian walk, he even says, this is righteousness from God. This is not of my own doing. Um, it is, he gives all glory to God. So we see Paul, who many of us will consider like the greatest follower of Christ that we have an example from, um, doing away with any confidence in self. And he teaches what I think will become the catalyst to unity, boldness, and effectiveness that we desire as Christ followers. And that, that catalyst is Christ confidence. Paul shifts from self-confidence to Christ confidence. He says his achievements that he walked into Christianity with are trash, and what he calls his achievements after knowing Christ are righteousness from God. See, Paul's trying to get the Philippians and maybe trying to get many of us to see the bigger picture. Simply put, the picture is bigger than you. It's bigger than just you. We have to think about it rationally. What we bring to the table is some good, lots of bad, and tons of effort for about 100 years. Um, for the man of flesh, death is the end of all things. All of our striving, all of our effort comes to an end in death. Well, I have good news for you, and this is the news... Paul teaches the end of death is Jesus Christ. We have hope in him because the end of all of, of life for us, it, Jesus was the end of that. He conquered death. And Paul's teaching on unity and calling us to practice humility, to bring about unity and establishing Christ as our example, he also exposes that in creation, humility is our natural state. We were made to be humble. Our achievements are fickle and mixed with sin. Christ's achievements are perfect and eternal. Not only that, but Christ was also humble. Remember chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being found in the form of servant. Also in Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation 
for all who obey him. We were designed to be humble, but instead of just watching us fumble around and try to do that as we keep fleeting back to our own selfish desires and our own, our own self-confidence and self-worth, Jesus came down and modeled in his life and ultimately on the cross humility for us. He modeled it. It says this in, in chapter 2, he emptied, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's for this reason Paul considers his own efforts trash and his new accomplishments in Christ as righteousness given to him by God. And it's this understanding of the character of Christ, this Christ confidence that he so desires to attain uh, that, that, he, that he'll say, in verses 10 and 11 of our passage tonight, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain attain the resurrection from the dead. So let's be like Paul, who, as Nate told us, would outrank all of us if it was by works. He would beat us all if it was by works. Let us make it our aim to know Christ, have Christ's confidence in the power of his resurrection, participating in his suffering, and even becoming like him in his death. We were designed for humility. Humility is the ignition for unity, and unity is how we will reach the world.